This podcast is brought to you by the Government Art Collection and is supported by an educational programme grant from the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art. In 1809, a jolly old fellow, always laughing, as his friends portrayed him, set off for England. He was Iranian and his name was Mirza Abul Hassan. He was sent as an envoy extraordinary to the court of George III by the Qajar Emperor Fatali Shah to negotiate a treaty of alliance. I'm Laura Popoviciu and in this episode we'll be navigating through 19th century London and Tehran in search of flamboyant characters, intricate architectural structures and resplendent portraits. Hearing their stories will help us shape an image of the British-Iranian relations at this crucial moment. Between 1785 and 1925, Iran was under the Qajar dynasty. This was a royal dynasty of Turkic origins who settled in the new capital, Tehran. It was the time when Iran renewed its contacts with the European powers, but increasingly became a pawn in the great game between Russia and Britain. Abul Hassan spent eight months in England and recorded all his adventures in his delightful Book of Wonders. Escorted here by James Justinian Moria, himself a diplomat and author of a picaresque romance of Persian life called The Adventures of Haji Baba of Isfahan, Abul Hassan landed in a country of wonders and began his mission against the growing ambitions of Russia and France. He was the guest of Gore Usli, a linguist, entrepreneur and diplomat who filled his days with horse riding, sightseeing, opera and shopping. Picture this scene. We're in Georgian London, surrounded by ladies in high-waist, classically inspired dresses and gentlemen in cutaway tailcoats with velvet collars, silk stockings and powdered wigs. And suddenly we have this extraordinary apparition with a turban, a gold brocade gown with a fur-trimmed cape woven with flowers. Abul Hassan became an instant society sensation and was courted by artists such as Thomas Lawrence and William Beechey who painted his portrait. After a successful audience with the king, during which he was presented with a comb set with diamonds for his beard, it was time for Abul Hassan to return to Iran, though not before convincing the king to appoint the first British ambassador to Tehran. Not surprisingly, this was Abul Hassan's dearest friend, Sir Gore Usli. Together with his brother, the Orientalist William Usli, and his secretary, James Morier, the complete embassy set off from Portsmouth on the 18th of July, 1810. A 16-gun salute was fired and many people were out to see us, recalls Abul Hassan. 
battling with thunder and lightning and hot blasts of winds and even a sea of locusts, they finally reached Tehran in November 1811. It was in this seat of learning and refinement, as James Moria described Tehran, that Usli decided to establish his embassy. I spoke to Mark Bertram, who knows all about the history of this building. He trained as an architect and then joined the professional civil service. He also authored Room for Diplomacy, a book on the history of all UK embassy buildings. Let's find out how much room for diplomacy there was between Britain and Iran at the beginning of the 19th century. Well, it was the first foreign mission to be built in Tehran, yes, and it was only the second British mission to be built overseas. The first permanent ambassador, Gore Usli, was given authority before he left London to ask the Shah for a piece of land, which the Shah obliged. Usli was a scholar and a very able man, and he had in a previous posting, he'd been in Oud in India. It's been suggested erroneously that what he built in Tehran was a sort of mini version of what he built in Oud, and that, that's not the case. What he, he did, he used a fairly basic Palladian Italianate uh, frontage and set it up on the floor, which made it look good with a big flight of steps up to it. But it was quite a quick and cheap building to build. He managed to create an axis, which you can see on the drawing. There's a public road runs across the site here. And to the south of the road, this became a large Persian garden and orchard and so on. And then he created north here this route from a gatehouse across what he created as an English garden and looking at the house which is standing here. So it wasn't just the house itself, it was the whole approach and access which he had in mind and he, he designed to be impressive. Luckily, we have a few contemporary descriptions of this building. Mark Bertram. James Morier, who was the secretary of Usley's embassy, wrote within days of its completion the house, with its white columns and its clean, tall facade, glitters more brightly than any other building in Tehran, except for the Grand Mosque, which is covered in gilded tiles. And Usli himself said, a few days after he'd occupied the house, he had a big dinner, and he wrote delightedly back home that my display of chandeliers and lustres with spermacetti candles and my fine plate, that's, that's his silver, quite astonished all of them, but a good English grate and a rousing fire seemed to claim almost equal admiration. Years later, Curzon said that it was a commodious house whose Italian portico and pillars were a perpetual record of Europe in the heart of Asia. You will be particularly careful not to excite the jealousy of the King of Persia. This was one piece of advice that George III offered Usli upon his appointment as ambassador. But how did this jealous Persian king named Fatali Shah appear in front of his foreign visitors? There are numerous contemporary accounts by English and French visitors, but one in particular is truly remarkable. An English artist, Robert Kerr Porter, who had the chance to draw the Shah's portrait, observed him with greatest attention during the Nowruz or the New Year's celebration in March 1818. 
His Majesty spoke. This was like a voice from the tombs, so deep, so hollow, and at the same time so penetratingly loud. It was one blaze of jewels which literally dazzled the sight on first looking at him. A lofty tiara of three elevations was on his head. It was entirely composed of thickly set diamonds, pearls, rubies and emeralds. The vesture was gold tissue, nearly covered with a similar disposition of jewellery. And crossing his shoulders were two strings of pearls, probably the largest in the world, showing a shape as noble as his air. He also had an exceptionally long black beard. This is exactly how he appears in a portrait by Ahmad in the government art collection. Dr. Moya Kari, curator of Islamic collections at Chester Beatty Library, tells us more about Fatali Shah's portraits. The early 19th century is an amazing period for imperial portraiture in Iran. And we see this effectively through the sort of high-profile large-scale paintings, portraits of Fat Ali Shah, who is the ruler up until 1834. And these are very grand oil paintings in which the Shah is painted with extreme care. So his face, his beard, his crown and his posture are part of this imperial profile. He's, in fact, glowing with diamonds. This isn't for his own vanity in any sense. This is for a projection of his own newly won power. And jewels in particular really represented the confiscations that he had achieved over the previous rulers and what he had inherited as well as what he had taken through force. So to wear the jewels of your enemy or your defe- a defeated previous dynasty, for example, is an extremely compelling statement of, of victory, fundamentally. I think when we look at how these portraits were used, then we see something which is in fact happening also in Europe at this time, which is these really grand-scale imperial portraits, where we're familiar with the idea of Napoleon, for example, standing in a particularly impressive, rather neoclassical pose. We've seen the political impact of the large-scale visual portrait. And Fat Ali Shah, Iran is aware of these iconographic developments. Iran is very much part of the same visual culture in terms of understanding the value of these big projections. We find portraits of Fat Ali Shah in every imperial capital with which Iran has an alliance in the early 19th century. So when you go to look for portraits of Fat Ali Shah, they are, of course, in St. Petersburg, they're in Paris and they're in London. There was also another side to the Qajar court, that of entertainment. And what better way to evoke this than through paintings? Dr. Moya Kari explains how we should look at these works. Well, when we look at Qajar paintings, um, We often now see them in isolation. We see them in galleries in different world museums. We see them in collections in Iran. But the paintings are really part of an architectural setup. They belong to a room. And these many of these paintings have these pointed arches at the top giving us a clue that they should be inset into niches in a room. So the paintings belong to often to a series of paintings that all would have hung together in one room. And really, we need to consider that as the correct way to see and appreciate what these paintings show us. So, for example, the paintings which show perhaps Fatali Shah standing in majesty, that painting might have been surrounded by a series of paintings of women, perhaps playing musical instruments, perhaps doing a handstand. In some cases, they're really fun. These paintings are really interesting. Two of these lively and decorative examples are in the Government Art Collection, 
showcasing distinctive features that reflect ideals of feminine beauty such as the monobrow or the luscious curly hair, these Kaja women are depicted engaging in different activities. One plucks the strings of her long-necked setar, an ancient instrument of Persian classical music, while the other adopts a contorted pose as she delicately handles a crystal wine decanter and a glass with her henna-painted hands. While these paintings are typical of the early Kajar period, there are some other important artistic developments which occurred after the reign of Fatali Shah. Well, Fatali Shah dies in 1834 and we see an interesting century after he's died in which Iran and the world changes rapidly. The diplomatic relationships come and go between Iran, France, Britain and Russia in particular, but many other countries as well. Generally, I think in terms of visual culture, the most important thing that happens in the mid 19th century for Iran's visual culture is probably the invention of photography. And that comes to Iran almost as soon as photography has been invented. We see photographers and and the fashion for photography coming into 1840s Iran already. And that has a great impact on style, on um, a sense of self and on modernity fundamentally. This is also a time when Uslis classical structure is replaced by a new one, which still exists today and is, in fact, the current British ambassador's residence in Tehran. Mark Bertram explains how this change came about. This was an extraordinary achievement. By the mid-1860s, i.e. about just over 50 years after the first house was built, it was no longer tenable. There had been an earthquake in 1830. It was in a terrible state. The city had moved north, and so this house was stranded in a much deteriorated environment of the city. Allison was the, was, was the minister, and he had a battle with London, and he got Treasury approval to buy a site in the north of Tehran and to build on it. And that's the site that we're talking about today. It was about 16 acres. He was granted, I think, £32,000, expecting that 12000 of it would come from the sale of the original site, and he had £20,000 to spend um, on, on new buildings. The person put in charge of building it was a set of British engineers working on the Indo-European Telegraph. The boss of that was called Murdoch Smith, I think, and he appointed uh, Lieutenant Henry Pearson to do all of this on, on his behalf. Pearson's an extraordinary man. He did a layout with minor buildings around the edges of the compound and the minister's residence right in the centre of it. So it's flat, or almost completely flat, and they very quickly built a pretty tall wall all the way around it. So it was an enclave, a, a compound, just what the Royal Engineers were used to from their days with the East India Company in India and so on. They needed an architect, though, for the minister's house itself, and they alighted upon a man in London called James Wilde, who was working at the time for the, the South Kensington Museum, which is now of course, the Victorian Albert Museum, and he had worked on the Great Exhibition closely with the Royal Engineers, so he was well known to the engineers. 
Wilde, he was a fairly eccentric chap. He was trained as an architect, and he was um, he had spent five years in Cairo looking at, um, at Islamic architecture. He never went to Persia, but he put together a rather splendid proposal. In plan, the thing is, uh, put it this way around, there's a courtyard, the green courtyard, right in the centre with a circle in it, right in the centre of the compound. And then opposite that, there is what are called the state rooms, the line of major rooms, which is the main feature of the building. And as you're standing on the front steps looking out, looking north, there's a wing to your right, which used to be the chancery offices. And and in that, there was the uh, sort of rather Italianate-looking bell tower, which is about, about six or seven stories. And on the left, there was a lodger and a whole line of guest bedrooms and offices and services and so on. But in the main suite of, of state rooms with two drawing rooms, a central vestibule and two dining rooms uh, and, and a billiard room and a chancery library at the end. Before the interior had been fully plastered out and so on, Pearson was torn away and, 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 and sent elsewhere. But he was replaced by a chap called Caspar Clark, who was an architectural draftsman. He rose, actually, eventually to be the director of the Victorian Albert Museum. But he spent two years in, in Tehran finishing the interiors of the state rooms off. And it's largely credit to him that they are as well done as they are. Isabella Bird, one of those daunting lady travellers, wrote in 1891. The finest of all the legations' enclosures is that of England, which is beautifully wooded and watered. The reception rooms and hall of the minister's residence are very handsome, and a Byzantine clock tower gives the building a striking air of distinction. Around the same time, Lord Curzon also expressed his admiration. The building opens by a veranda at the back to a lovely garden where swans float on the brimming tanks of water, peacocks flash amid the flower beds. The coolness and seclusion of the entire enclosure is one of the most agreeable and our common features in Tehran. It was an almost magical mixture of dignity and size and space and, and showing off with an attempt, as you can see from that drawing, we were looking at to marry European features, Italianate arches and a Saracenic howder on the, on the top of the entrance hall, this rather Italianate tower, and here in sort of almost, some of you call it an Islamic bathhouse, and that turned out to be, in the end, the Oriental Secretary's office, but it's got an Islamic dome on it. So he's had a lot of fun, I think, whether he was trying to marry two cultures, that seemed, would be an appropriate thing to do, and so on. But he thought about this in great depth, and it resonated with visitors throughout. Now that we have a new diplomatic building, it's time to hear about the characters who orchestrated the diplomatic relations. Dr Moya Carey. If you look at British-Iranian diplomacy in the second half of the 19th century, you're really talking about Nasruddin Shah's reign, that's 1848 to 96. So he is, his reign is overlaps, victorious, more or less. So Nasruddin Shah travels to Europe on three occasions for grandiose tours of the European courts. And these are in 1873, 1876 and 1889. And when he does this, he is celebrated in all these different courts that he visits. He goes to international exhibitions. He is brought on tours of factories. He is encountering industrialization 
in almost every country he goes to. We know remarkably a lot about his diary on these tours because he publishes his diary. His presence is discussed in the press everywhere he goes. We can track him day by day through his own personal diary, copies which are in Golestan Palace in Tehran, to the point that everything, even the ephemera of the different events and celebrations he goes to, are all on record in Golestan Palace. The attention he receives is quite dramatic. And this is clearly part of an international exercise to raise Iran's profile as a nation state, that he is an an emperor like the, the rulers he visits. And his status is clearly being confirmed by these tours. And that matters in terms of Iran's political status and how well, it matters in terms of international loans, of course, where Iran is to be considered a forward-looking state and it attracts investors. The travelling king reached England on the 19th of June, 1873 and spent 18 days sightseeing. He admired Buckingham Palace with its peacocks and the crane walking about the lawn. He marvelled at the curious specimens of sea lions and acrobatic monkeys at London Zoo and strolled through a very cloudy and foggy Hyde Park. He went to the theatre one evening to hear performances by Adelina Patti, an Italian soprano greatly admired by Verdi, and Emma Albani, the first Canadian soprano to become an international star, a favourite of Queen Victoria. What could have been more flattering for an Iranian ruler than to hear the opening aria from Handel's opera Xerxes, Ombra Maifu, in which the great ancient Persian king of the Achaemenid Empire admires the tender and sweet shadow of a plane tree. Another memorable event was a state banquet at the Guildhall, where the Shah feasted on salmon, lamb cutlets with peas, salad, pineapple compote, jellies and cakes. But how was the Shah received by Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle? Dr Moya Carey describes their encounter. We have pictures in the Illustrated London News of them meeting and Nasruddin Shah gives Queen Victoria the Order of the Sun, which is a medal which is invented an order that is invented on her behalf. It can only be given to female rulers. And they clearly have an exchange of gifts, which are in today in either Golestan or Windsor. So we have a, an imperial uh, encounter. We have nice details of the diplomatic gift exchange, which are quite, uh, quite enjoyable. One is that Queen Victoria sends a copy of her Highland diaries to the Shah, and as a return gift, he has it translated into Persian, um, written out in fine calligraphy in an, an illuminated manuscript with an extraordinarily beautiful binding. And this new manuscript is then re- sent back to Windsor as a gift for the Queen, sort of returning her um, literary effort with um, some extraordinary embellishments. So these little gifts show us, well, they're not little gifts, these little gifts show us a, a something of the personalities of the givers as well as the estimation of, of, of each for the, for the other. 
And Queen Victoria also receives a really wonderful tiara, which is also in Windsor at the moment. Very beautiful and very, very small. So the gifts are very high value, but also um, interesting choices. A little reminder of this encounter is subtly evoked through the presence of two works of art in the British residence in Tehran. An oil sketch by Nasser Adin Shah showing the church of Santa Maria della Salute in Venice, bathed in sunlight, which he painted in Tehran in the late 1850s, and an autographed copy of George Hayter's coronation portrait of Queen Victoria. As Dr Moya Carey explains, this portrait was specifically made for the residence and features an unusual detail. We know that it hung in the main reception rooms because we've got photography from the 1880s and 90s which show it in situ. So this is something which I suppose we would generally expect in any British embassy in the late Victorian period, which would be a large-scale painting. It is interesting that it's inscribed in Persian, saying that George Hayter holds the, the Order of the Lion and the Sun. It's also a little bit ostentatious because it's sort of showing a knowledge of Persian and it's sort of making that clear. That doesn't mean it was there for all Iranian visitors to see because, don't forget, the British diplomats would have had excellent Persian as a matter of course. So they would be well able to read that too. So it doesn't presuppose a different audience, in fact, than the, the diplomatic community who would be right there. Of course, Iranian visitors would notice it, and that is impressive. But it is also perhaps more impressive to us now than it would have been in the 1860s and 1870s. But you could also look at the date of the Hater portrait and go, well, what was happening between Iran and Britain by the 1863, which is that the Persian, the Anglo-Persian War was over, things were improving, and they were starting to build a telegraph network together. So the date is possibly more significant in terms of a return to some sort of normality between the two countries in terms of working together on any project at all as opposed to being at war over Herat, which they had been in a fairly short war between 56 and 57. So maybe the 1860s show us a bit of a turnaround for the relationship between the two countries. Queen Victoria's portrait has been in continuous display in the residence since 1863. Most of the times a discreet observer of Britain's stunts in a changing world. Until 2011, when a dramatic and unprecedented incident led to a surprising shift in this perception. Join me next time to find out what happened and hear how art, and especially art under attack, whether defaced or slashed, can still gracefully express itself. <laughs>